did a takeover of an empire manage to get swept away entirely from history books? When the Romanovs took over Tartaria and migrated to America, how were they able to create a society that never knew of Tartaria's existence? In order to understand, it's key for us to explore the remnants of power in regard to politics, our origins, and technology. After all, those who are in power politically control the technological power and the historical data that is given to society. In part one of our series, we learn that the Romanov dynasty eliminated what was left of Tartaria and conquered much of the Tartarian Empire, including what we know as the U.S. They not only destroyed almost all Tartarian structures, but the ones they kept were taken over and made into pillars of their newfound empire, the New World Order. This is evident in many Tartarian structures that are now federal courthouses, prisons, libraries, museums, post offices, churches, and federal parks. As we explore the magnitude of this massive takeover, we'll examine the enormous cover-up of technological advancements that had once fueled the Tartarian civilization, and we'll dig even deeper into the origins of America, exposing what might be the biggest cover-up of our time that Rome, Greece, and Egypt originated in America. This is the Tartarian Empire II, Remnant Power. Reminder, it's important to remember Anatoly Fomenko's research from part one of this series, stating that history prior to 800 AD has been fabricated. He writes that our history has been based on actual events that occurred between 1000 to 1500 AD, meaning anything before that was destroyed, leaving us in the dark of our true origin story. The question then becomes, how do we find out the truth of our origins? The answer lies in remnant truths waiting to be discovered by future generations. The truths dared to be explored in this film. Started in the 13th century, when the Vatican, under the influence of the Khazarian Mafia, planted its roots in England. This would be one of the most essential steps in creating the Pyramid of Power, the building blocks of a New World Order. In 1213, King John surrendered the Kingdom of England to the Holy See under the Golden Bull. That means the Vatican took power of England. Two years later, in 1215, under direct papal authority, King John issued the Magna Carta, Latin for the Great Charter, and established the one-mile-square block called the City of London Corporation as a sovereign entity from England and London. Eventually, the Virginia Company was issued by the British Royal Family from the City of London Corporation for North American settlements. The Virginia Company of London was a joint stock company chartered by King James I to establish a colony in North America. Keep in mind, natives already had a claim to the land, but that wasn't important to King James. This venture allowed the crown to reap the benefits of colonization. Natural resources, new markets for English goods, leverage against the Spanish, all without bearing the costs. Investors, meanwhile, 
were protected from the catastrophic losses in the event of the project's failure. Remember, this was a risky project. A successful outcome was uncertain. Nevertheless, the company established a settlement at Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. And over the next 18 years, the Crown granted the company two new charters, democratizing its governance and reforming its financial model. So what began as an enterprise of investors seeking a dividend was funded a decade later almost exclusively by a public lottery. By 1618, the company had found a way to use its most abundant resource, land, to tempt settlers to pay their own passage from England to the colony and then, after arrival, to pay the company a fee to use the land. Still, after all this, the Virginia Company and the colony it oversaw struggled to survive. Disease, mismanagement, Indian attacks, and factionalism in London all took a toll until, in 1623, the Privy Council launched an investigation into the company's finances. A year later, the company's charter was revoked and the Crown assumed direct control of Virginia. Eventually, the Virginia Company was turned into the United States during the Revolutionary War by the Freemasonic Founding Fathers who are serving the Grand Lodge of England. Don't think George Washington was a Freemason? Have a look at his tombstone. We are taught America won the Revolutionary War. But if so, why would the king still be calling the shots? This implies the Founding Fathers of the United States didn't actually free us from the rule of the crown. This brings us to the Treaty of Paris, 1783. The Revolutionary War ended in 1781, and a treaty was signed in 1783. If the United States defeated England, how is the king still granting rights to America's new settlers, when they were now equal in status because of winning the war? The treaty is more of a permission slip than a demand to be acknowledged as an independent nation. Why would the famous patriots Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay sign a treaty when they knew it would void any sovereignty gained by the Declaration of Independence and the winning of the Revolutionary War. If the settlers had truly won the Revolutionary War, it wouldn't be necessary for the king to grant them land. It would have been theirs by the king's loss in the war. For them to dictate the terms of the peace treaty shows their position of strength after winning the war, meaning the Americans never won. Think of other wars the U.S. had won, such as when they defeated Japan. Did MacArthur allow Japan to dictate the terms for surrender? No way. All these men did was gain status and privilege granted by the king, and this ensured the compliance and subjection of future unaware generations. Worst of all, they sold out all those who gave their lives and property for the chance to be free. Furthermore, when Cornwallis surrendered to Washington, he surrendered the battle, but not the war. Jonathan Williams recorded in his book, Legions of Satan, in 1781, that Cornwallis revealed to Washington during his surrender, a holy war will now begin on America, and when it is ended, America will be supposedly the citadel of freedom, but her millions will unknowingly be loyal subjects to the crown. In less than 200 years, the whole nation will be working for a divine world government, the government they believe to be divine 
will be the British government. All the treaty did was remove the United States as a liability and obligation of the king, reducing the same liability to the Holy See. The king no longer had to ship material and money to support his subjects and colonies. In this right, they had become independent, but not free. They were given liberty and not freedom. At the same time, the crown retained financial control through debt owed after the treaty, which in fact is still being created today, millions of dollars a day. And his heirs and successors in the Vatican are still reaping the benefit of the king's original venture. The following quote from Title 26 shows just one situation where the king is still collecting a tax from those that receive a benefit from him on property which is purchased with the money the king supplies at almost the same percentage. Title 26, U.S. Code, Section 1491, Imposition of Tax. There is hereby imposed on the transfer of property by a citizen or resident of the United States, or by a domestic corporation or partnership, or by an estate or trust which is not a foreign estate or trust, to a foreign corporation as paid in surplus or as a contribution to capital, or to a foreign estate or trust, or to a foreign partnership, an excise tax equal to 35% of the excess of 1 the fair market value of the property so transferred over to the sum of a the adjusted basis for determining gain of such property in the hands of the transfer plus b the amount of the gain recognized to the transfer at the time of the transfer the British Corporation, or the City of London, would face opposition in their attempts to force federal law upon the people of the United States of America. The Constitution and Declaration of Independence was written to protect the sovereign rights of its people by defining the boundaries of federal reach from the Crown. But it appears the Crown willingly allowed for their independence, not by losing the war, but by winning it, and strategically benefited every step of the way. How could they get away with all this control? They were protected by their Law of Commerce, or Law of the Water, which the U.S. was officially under by 1868, enslaving people from birth through citizenship, a form of trickery used in law that surrendered a woman or man to the title of person, serving under office, which surrendered their sovereignty to the state, all in exchange for federal benefits, tricking them into a contract, thereby linking a real person into a business entity ridding them of rule by law of the land and allowing for them to commit to being controlled by maritime admiralty law or the law of the water. To better understand the law of the water and how the Vatican used its commerce to control the world, here's the brilliant Jordan Maxwell explaining the concept of maritime admiralty banking law. You've heard the term law of the land. But in point of fact, that's precisely what this word means, law of the land, because it is the people who live on land. And that is opposed to something else called the law of the high seas or the law of water. You need to understand the difference. The law of the land is the law of the culture that lives on the land. And so consequently, the law of the land is different in every country. You can do things in America you can't do in Russia. You can do things in Africa you can't do in England. 
So the law of the land is the law of the culture that lives on that particular land. However, there is a higher law that dominates the entire world. It's called the law of the water or the law of the high seas. The law of water is referred to as the law of money. It doesn't matter what color you are, where you're from, or where you live. Money is money. And anytime you're doing banking or using money, you are now under the law of water, maritime admiralty. If you go back in history, in ancient history, where all of this began, back in the land of Cana, and I've heard, you probably have heard in the Bible, the land of Cana. The Canaanites were Phoenician, Phoenician bloodline. And in the ancient Phoenician language, Cana meant merchant banker. The very word merchant comes from mer, M-E-R, for the sea, for water. As a mermaid, we have merchant. Merchant bankers. Let me give an example of the difference between the law of water and the law of the land. The law of water, as I said, is a law of banking, money, as opposed to the law of the custom of the people or the law of the land. Um, the Statue of Liberty must be put in water. It could not be put on American land as such. It had to be put in a harbor because it's not the Statue of Freedom. It's a Statue of Liberty. Liberty is what a sailor gets when he pulls into port on ship. He gets liberty. He's not free. So America is not the land of the free and the home of the brave. We're not free or brave. Period. We're not free. This is not a free country. Now let me give you an example of how this law of the water works. Why is it that you have to go to court? People are always concerned about going to court. You go to court because you play basketball and tennis on a court. How do you play tennis on a court? You play with a racket. Why? So that's what it is. It's a racket. And make no mistake, they do not pick words by chance. These words are very serious. They do not use words in terms um, with no avail. These words are very important. When you go into a court, what's the idea of going to court? It's a game, like basketball. The whole idea in a court is to put the ball back in the other guy's court. Uh, one team gets up and they throw the ball over to that team of lawyers. That team gets up and throws the ball back into their court. And consequently, it's a ball game. And the judge is wearing a black robe, so he is the referee. The judge is the referee. He doesn't care which side wins or loses because he's going to get paid anyway. So he couldn't care less. He's merely there as a referee, and that's why he wears a black robe. And that's another interesting subject we can get into later. But the judge is a, is a referee between two teams. The judge, that we are told, rules from the bench. The word bench in Latin is a bank. Therefore, the judge rules for the bank. Where do you find banks? You find banks on both sides of a river. They're called river banks. And what does a river bank do? 
it directs the flow of the current C. The juice. Consequently, your money is current C because it's the flow, the cash flow. And I'll give you an example of how this works. When a ship pulls into a harbor, all ships are referred to as female. Airships, rocket ships, sailing ships are always female. Why? There's a very good reason. Maritime Admiralty Banking Law says all ships are female because uh, they're carrying items. They're carrying items for money. And so consequently, they are under Maritime Admiralty Law. Admiralty is where we get the word Admiral, Admiral of the Navy. Let me give you an example of how this works. When a ship pulls into harbor, it parks at the dock, and it ties off at the dock. The captain has to provide for the um, port authorities a certificate of manifest, because yesterday the ship was not here. But this morning the ship pulled in, so it has manifested. So consequently, all the products, the $800 million worth of TVs or Toyotas, have manifested. So each one of those items coming off of that ship has come off of water. And each end, they has come in a ship. And consequently, on a ship, all ships have a captain. The word captain comes from a Latin word, capital, money. So the captain represents the money that's on board the ship. And as I said, the captain has to present to the port authorities a certificate of manifest for each and every item. How much does it weigh? What color is it? How many doors does it have? Etc. And consequently, the captain presents a certificate of manifest. The ship is sitting in its berth. Wherever a ship sits when it docks is called its berth. She sits in her berth birthing a ship. Consequently, all the items, as I said, coming off that ship represent money. They came in on water. They are maritime admiralty product. And this is true all over the world. Now, when you were born, your mother's water broke. And when your mother's water broke, you came out. And this is why you have to have a birth certificate. Because you are a maritime admiralty product under international law. You are considered, your body is considered a maritime admiralty product. Your mother delivered you. That's why if you go to Sears and buy a refrigerator, they will ship it to you. They will deliver it. That's why you were in your delivery room. Your mother was delivering a product. Maritime Admiralty. You came down your mother's birth canal. And once you, uh, and as you're taking one of the, uh, the televisions or the cars off the ship and it falls down and breaks, uh, that's all right. Sometimes they're stillborn, so consequently you've lost money on that one. Therefore, you have to have a death certificate. And it's always signed by the dock. The doc has to sign your birth certificate and your death certificate. All of these words and terms are maritime admiralty banking words. And therefore, if you understand lawyers, 
and judges and courts and government are all under international maritime admiralty law. All religions, all churches in the world operate under maritime law. This is why all churches are divided into denominations like 20s and 50s and 100s. Serious. This is why they're called denominations, because all churches are nothing more than the product of maritime admiralty banking. It's an extraordinary story of occult uh, treason, high treason and crimes against the state. Make no mistake about it. There has never been a country on the face of the earth as far back into history as you can go. There has never existed a country in which the people rose up and demanded their right to be free. Never. The concept of human, spiritual, intellectual, and physical freedom is a totally uh, concept that has never, ever existed on the earth. The only time that has ever come into existence was the founding of this country where it was understood that we were sovereigns and we owned our bodies. And consequently, since 1868, we're now on the International Maritime Admiralty Law. It would take just 100 years from the signing of the peace treaty for the Crown to implement control of the American people. They did so by tricking the sovereign into submitting to a maritime admiralty law in exchange for goods and services provided by the Crown. 1865, the 13th Amendment made it so people could volunteer into slavery by accepting federal benefits. In 1868, a privately owned foreign British corporation called the United States was created and incorporated in Delaware. Also in 1868, the 14th Amendment defined two new legal entities, one, a citizen of the United States, and two, a person, both subject to the federal government jurisdiction as agents or officers and or employees of the government. It is then stated that no state could infringe or deprive any U.S. citizen or person of their privileges and immunities as U.S. citizens. Of great importance was the use of the terms privileges and immunities as opposed to rights as persons or citizens, that is, agents or employees, of the private foreign United States corporation, they had no rights within that corporation. They possessed only privileges granted to them by that private foreign corporation called the United States. In 1871, the Organic Act was passed and was titled An Act to Provide a Government for the District of Columbia. Congress, illegally acting on its own behalf, created a separate form of government for the District of Columbia. Congress, realizing that a country was in severe financial difficulty, cut a deal with the international bankers, in the process, incurring more debt to those bankers. In 1874, the Internal Revenue Code was created and is the body of law that codifies all federal tax laws, including income, estate, gift, excise, alcohol, tobacco, and employment taxes. And lastly, the Vatican and the Holy See would become officialized by becoming sovereign in 1929. Now, the New World Order had its three power centers, Washington, D.C., the City of London, 
and the Holy See of the Vatican. Is it starting to make sense how the British Virginia Company venture had failed, was then taken up by the Crown, and then created the foundation of Washington, D.C. in the same way the Pope acquired the city of London from England, in turn manipulating their laws, rendering them both into money-making machines, enslaving the people of both England and eventually the people of the United States. Now that you're aware how power was taken politically, it's important to see the historical origins that this political power had covered up. uses Latin for official documents, and the Vatican uses Latin as its official language. Novus Ordo Seclorum is Latin and translates to New Order of the Ages, and is on the United States Great Seal and the U.S. Dollar Bill. Can it get any more obvious than that? Now ponder this. Washington, D.C. is located in both Virginia and Maryland, that is, Virgin Maryland. Also note that stated in the Catholic Encyclopedia in 1669, D.C. was originally called Rome. Some may believe ancient Rome was in America, since Rome, Maryland, which is Washington, D.C., was the first Vatican City. A branch of the Potomac River was called Tiber Creek, which was named after the Tiber River in Rome. Like Rome, Washington, D.C. has seven hills, whose names are Capitol Hill, Meridian Hill, Floral, Forest, Hillbrook, Hillcrest, and Knox Hill. Washington, D.C. is filled with Roman architecture and has a Roman fascist symbol all over U.S. federal buildings, with Capitol Hill being named after Capitoline Hill from Rome. Washington, D.C.'s origins are becoming more obvious. All this implies the federal government of the United States is based upon the principles of the Roman Republic, which was a fascist empire, and fascism means a centralization of power. The word fascist comes from the Roman fasces, which is a bundle of rods with a projecting axe blade carried by a Roman officer, also known as a lictor, or an executor, which was a symbol of a magistrate's power and used as an emblem of authority as well as a beating tool for punishment toward anyone who disagreed with Roman laws. Lastly, the logo's column symbolizes the political support that maintains their claim to governmental land ownership. Symbols in architecture are remnant clues to our true history. Since the Moors were the Tartarians, according to the Gothic architecture all over the world, but mainly in the Americas, this means that modern-day Europeans did not build any of these Greco-Roman Gothic structures in Old World America, because a previous advanced American civilization called Moors and Berber Indians civilized the ancient world. Construction of New York skyscrapers, such as the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Tower, and bridges of the New York and New England area were prominently built by male members of the Mohawk Indian tribe, and they were nicknamed Skywalkers, as they would work hundreds and thousands of feet in the sky without harnesses. 
more evidence that points to Rome's influence in America comes from Rome, Georgia, and the Cherokee Indians who are known to call themselves Romans. Remember in History Unraveled, America was shown to be inhabited by native Mongol Tartarians, who are the Native American tribes we've learned of in school, but contrary to what we were taught, the majority of these tribes were black, and the slave trade fabrication hid the fact that the Moor civilization was in America prior to the African slave ships that brought them. This was done to hide the truth of the mass American genocide, and the Cherokee Indians were one of the native Tartarian tribes. Oddly, the Cherokee called their land Rome. To add to that, it is said to their dying breath, the Cherokee natives of that time called themselves Romans. Contrary to public school teachings, the Cherokee were living in Western-style houses. In fact, they were living inside of antebellum mansions before settlers turned them into plantations. Eventually, the Cherokee were expelled from their land and lost their property in the 1830s. This happened during the forced Trail of Tears. It took hundreds of years to do it, but the power-hungry colonists eventually took it all over. In the following 50 years, we'd see America fully become corporatized. So, which Rome came first? Could it be that Rome was here first, and everything afterward was built in Italy? Did they rewrite history to make us think otherwise? This theory is up for debate, but there is evidence that points to ancient Greece and ancient Rome having their roots in America. For starters, much can be learned by studying their money, their coins. A comparison between Greek, Roman, and U.S. coins demonstrate that ancient Greece and ancient Rome were in the Americas. These coins are very similar, with the head and the eagle on all of them. The original coin was the head of the virgin goddess Columbia and her eagle, owl, or phoenix. However, the U.S. Mint in 2017 made a gold coin of the original black Greek goddess, or Greek virgin goddess Columbia, with her eagle on it, valued at $100. The Greek virgin goddess Columbia was a black Greek. We can see that in images. Greek is Creek, the Native American tribe. If the Native American tribes were black, it would explain the Black Greek, or Creek, goddess Columbia. Columbia was patterned after the ancient Egyptian goddess Isis. Columbia is also the symbol of America, since she symbolizes liberty, freedom, and justice. Is this why Rome, Maryland eventually became known as Washington, D.C.? D.C. standing for District of Columbia? In addition, we have a comparison between Rome's Pentagon and the U.S. Pentagon that we can consider. As you can see, both Rome, Italy, and Washington have a Pentagon, which is the shape of a five-pointed star, which is a symbol of the planet Venus transit and the virgin goddess Columbia. The five-pointed star is a symbol of supreme intelligence, since it also represents the builders, or the five aspects of the mind, thought, will, feeling, memory, and imagination, all of which are needed to bring forth creation. The five-pointed star also symbolizes the human form with its five points, arm, leg, leg, arm, head, which is an anagram for Allah, or the All. 
The Greco-Roman architecture could demonstrate that the Americas was ancient Greece and ancient Rome. When Greece conquered Egypt, the civilizations merged into the Greco-Egyptian civilization, which meant the unification of Greece and Egypt. Greco-Egyptian. When Rome conquered Greco-Egypt, the civilization became known as Greco-Roman, which meant the unification of Greece and Rome. Greco-Roman. Therefore, knowing who the Greeks and Romans are is vital to knowing who are the current ancient Egyptians or who became the ancient Egyptians after conquest, since Greece and Rome based both of their civilizations off the Egyptian civilization. Therefore, the Greeks and the Cherokee may in fact be the Greeks and the Romans, which means that these two tribes and the lot of Native Americans were the real modern-day Egyptians. Realizing this, it makes sense that they were all killed in the Great American Genocide. They held the secrets. Killing them would kill history. So what does this mean? Was Egypt in America? Egypt was a global Blackmoor civilization meaning America's old Egypt Tamari, the land of the Mers, and the land of Mary, because the ancient Egyptian god Ta, a pre-dynastic Egyptian deity, also an Atlantean god, is from the Americas. Yes, Ta, or Judah, is from the Americas, because this territory was Ta, Utah, Judah land, which covered New Mexico and several states, California, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Texas. For those who find this hard to believe, there is undeniable evidence found within areas of the Grand Canyon that have been kept off limits to the general public. And if it became public knowledge, history would unravel profoundly, and the lies we've been told would too. In a restricted area of the Grand Canyon, which is found in Arizona, there are pyramids and caves full of hieroglyphics and Egyptian relics. Many people don't know about them, as this information has been suppressed by the federal government for about a century. The sky over this area is restricted airspace, and the area surrounding this cave on the ground is illegal and treacherous to navigate. And all official reports about this from the Smithsonian and elsewhere have been censored, modified, nullified, or retracted. This still did not stop people from attempting to visit this part of the canyon. Many have been arrested, and some have died attempting to climb to these sacred sites over the years. It's gotten to the point where the government feels it must have armed FBI agents guarding inside the entrance to the cave that is now known as Kincaid's Cave. There were many Egyptian relics that were discovered in Kincaid's cave, one of which was a pure gold artifact for the Egyptian king named Kayan. This was found in the first cross tunnel of the cave, which was in the exact same location as the shrines in the valley of the king's tunnel cities, before the kings of ancient Egypt began to build pyramids and above-ground cities. It was found that Kayan was a descendant of King Zapnith in Egypt, 
This cavern is over 500 feet long and has several cross tunnels to large chambers. Archaeologists estimate the man-made cavern is about 3,000 years old. G.E. Kincaid wasn't the only person to discover Egyptian relics at the Grand Canyon. There is also John Wesley Powell. Powell discovered what is now called Powell's Cave. The following is a quote taken directly out of a book that Powell published. In this canyon, great numbers of man-made caves are hollowed out. I first walked down a gorge to the left of a cliff and climbed to a bench on that cliff. There was a trail on the cliff bench that was deeply worn into the rock formation. Where the trail crossed some gulches, some steps had been cut out. I could see no evidence that the trail had been traveled in a long time. I returned to our camp about 3 p.m. and the men had found more Egyptian hieroglyphics on the cliff walls near the cave. We explored the cave and found this shrine and other artifacts. That evening, I sent a team member to notify the Smithsonian Institute of our discovery. We continued to survey the canyon and discovered more Egyptian tunnel cities. I estimate in my report that I think upwards of 50,000 Egyptians had inhabited the Grand Canyon at one time. There was a shrine found at Powell's Cave. This was identified as a shrine for Setuprim. Also found was a diagram for the Egyptian writing system when the ancient Egyptians came to the Grand Canyon. It was a school tablet used for teaching Egyptian children to read and write. There were even crypts, sarcophagi, discovered. What's more to add is that all the monuments in the Grand Canyon are named after Egyptian pharaohs. The famous canyon in Arizona is actually an ancient array of pyramids. The sites even align with the same stars that the pyramids of Giza align with, the constellations of Orion and Pleiades. Remember, there are more pyramids in the Americas than in the entire world. This federal park is one of the many seized and protected sites of evidence that can prove our Egyptian Tartarian ancestry. What's also interesting is the story of King Tartarax, found in Kansas and Nebraska in the 1600s. Tartarax in Nebraska is celebrated every 4th of July during the carnival known as the Carnival of King Tartarax. The story of Tartarax is old. It's come down to us through the legends of the Indians and also the efforts of old Spanish historians. It is said that the ruler of this country was an old man named Tartarax. He was quite wealthy and worshipped the image of a woman and a cross of gold. 
and he prayed by means of a string of beads. In essence, they're celebrating a Tartarian king in North America from the 1600s. I wonder why we weren't taught about that. Also interesting, in the 1930s, the Tennessee Valley Authority conducted excavations in Tennessee, revealing Egyptian-like structures in mounds. This sparked speculation about an ancient Egyptian presence in America. The excavation photos and reports offered insights into the structure's architecture, with standing stones and interpreted pylons resembling Egyptian temples. Initially labeled as a 1920 construction by John T. Lupton, inspired by Egyptian architecture, they deny its ancient origins. Despite ownership changes from public to private, the temple spent the last 80 years submerged under the water of a Tennessee dam. Consider the potential secrets beneath other dams across America. Watching the water now takes on a new significance. It's important to note Pyramid Lake in Utah and Pyramid Lake in Oregon. And how about the Mississippi River? Could it be mirroring the Nile River? Would that make America the promised land from the Bible? Could there be a Sphinx in Memphis, Tennessee, just like there's one in the Temple of Ta in Memphis, Egypt? Like Arizona, there seems to be something powerful about Tennessee when it comes to ancient Egyptian relics. In the late 1800s, the U.S. hosted exhibits seemingly temporary, and then they tore down everything afterward possibly a way to justify removing historical monuments. The Memphis Pyramid exhibit and the adjacent Parthenon, along with Greco-Roman-inspired buildings surrounding, exemplify this trend. Fort Negley National Star Fort is still standing and being renovated. Now that we understand our historical origins, it's important to learn what technologies were erased. Star forts were historically considered for defensive purposes, however, a hidden aspect suggests that Tartarians designed them as vibrational ecosystems for community joy and harmony. Star cities, self-contained environments, embody sacred geometric patterns symbolizing the cosmos. Key elements defining Tartarian civilization include remains of large lakes, long channels, unique stone bridges, stone streets, and baths. These features utilized water infrastructure to generate a magnetic frequency, fostering an energy euphoria of joy and harmony. The first star forts are said to have been built as early as the beginning of the 1500s, exactly when the Romanovs were setting about conquering vast areas of Tartary. These truths are kept hidden from us so we don't realize our powerful, innate abilities. 
Because when we do, it's game over for the New World Order. This leads us to obelisks. In all, the Egyptians created 28 obelisks, so it would have been a massive undertaking. Most are now fallen, and only 8 remain standing in Egypt today. However, there are also standing Egyptian obelisks in Istanbul, Rome, London, Paris, and New York. It's been suggested that these were stolen from Egypt, but considering that even the lightest obelisk weighed 110 tons, up to a maximum weight of 323 tons, this begs the question, who would go to the trouble of transporting such a heavy object thousands of kilometers just to steal a huge block of stone for decorative purposes? I think it's much more likely that the Egyptians were in the process of setting up a global power distribution network that was either never completed or completed and then destroyed. If the ancient Egyptians had electricity, it would explain why so many ancient carvings seem to depict giant light bulbs. It would also explain why there are no soot marks from flame torches inside the pyramids. They may have had electrical lighting. You see, with this in mind, the dots connect. The worldwide Tartarian structures, believed to have been built in the 13th century by a horse and buggy, were not just aesthetically pleasing, but also served the purpose of energy collection. The Tartarians extracted electromagnetic energy from the ether. Complexes of temples, domes, towers that used copper. The energy was processed and stored in toroidal coils at power plant summits, covered with copper and always positioned below the towers. When mercury starts rotating inside coils, magnetic fields are formed and create electric charges in the mercury vortex. In other words, the movement of electrons in metals like copper, when influenced by a magnetic field, generates electricity. Hindu energetic complexes exhibit this function at the top of their structures. Coils can still be seen at the top of the power supply centers in India. These are actual remnants of power. Manufactured history as well as invented religions referred to these structures as temples, but were actually power supply centers. Examples include the Parmanon Temple Complex in Indonesia, the Taj Mahal, the Hagia Sophia, and many cathedrals, temples, and palaces worldwide. Wolsey Hall, now part of Yale University, was possibly a former power plant and its symphonic organ was associated with the resonance of electromagnetic energy. This energy was used to heal people and animals of disease. Paramanand Complex in Indonesia had originally 240 power stations in a concentric mandala layout. As you begin to observe keenly, the Tartarian architecture for energy extraction can be seen in various structures worldwide. Tartarian energy extraction structures were not limited to just these types of buildings. They extended to pyramids as well. How does a pyramid generate power? Pyramids, like the Great Pyramid of Giza, 
were built on energy ley lines and utilized specific materials to generate and magnify energy. The use of white polished limestone casing stones provided insulation and reflection of sunlight. The inner surfaces were lined with dolomite, known for increasing electrical conductivity. Granite, slightly radioactive and containing quartz crystal, served as a conductor of piezoelectricity. Water flowing through the limestone and granite, combined with the stress and pressure within the pyramid, created electromagnetic energy. Also, the Great Pyramid's location magnified electromagnetic forces, and the chemical reactions within the structure allowed this energy to rise to the upper layers. When considering pyramid power and construction of pyramids, the transportation of heavy stones for such massive construction projects remains a mystery. The possibility of levitation by UFO assistance, as crazy as it may sound, could have played a part. Reverse engineering on UFOs has shown that they have the ability to create a force field where gravity doesn't exist, therefore allowing for the success of incredible speeds and abrupt turns. Or maybe a workforce of giants assisted with the creation of the pyramids. Ancient astronaut theorists believed that the ancient beings from outer space were behind the construction of massive structures. They suggest that the art of levitation through sonic or some other obscure method allowed ancient Egyptians to defy gravity and manipulate massive objects easily. But still, others insist that the ancient builders of the pyramids were giants. One of the proponents of the theory of the Egyptian giants was Canadian author, lecturer, astrologer, and mystic Manly P. Hall. According to an American author and journalist, Jason Colavito, Hall put forward a theory that the pyramids of Egypt had been built by giants who were called the Shaddai, superhuman beings. And within those pyramids, they had stored a great treasure beyond the knowledge of man. In the Asclepian Dialogue, Hermes describes the fact that in a sense these buildings were memorials to the divine power. They bore witness to those times and those thoughts when the gods walked with men. They became part of a traditional heritage. The gods who walked with men were actually the gods in men that it was a divine level of insight which resulted in the great architectural feedback which we know as the pyramids. The circumstances around them challenge our imagination. We know that whoever built the Great Pyramid of Giza was well acquainted with astronomy, that he had a very complete knowledge of the solar system and all of the wonders of the cosmic plan as revealed through the bodies and objects moving in the heavens. He knew the distances between the Earth and the other planets of the solar system. He knew the precession of the equinoxes. He realized the importance of the star groups. He already knew the decans and dodecanates of the zodiac. The only possible answer is that at the time the pyramid builders labored, they had a knowledge among themselves that had not been distributed to the people. Even the rulers did not possess this knowledge. 
and that there was a cult or sect of architects and artificers who knew the proportions and mathematics. Also, they require a skill and a group of instrumental aids, which we do not believe that antiquity possessed. We know that the Egyptians and other nations of that period were esotericists. We know that they had a knowledge of natural law far ahead of their time. These people had a deep appreciation for the immensity and integrity of the universal plan. They had never developed that strange type of egotism which impels us often to assume that God is depending upon us to take care of his purposes and plans. They did not think this. One thing is probably inevitable, that whoever built the pyramid had a very great knowledge. One thing that comes to mind then in connection with this whole situation is that we may have to revise our understanding of what antiquity was like. Somewhere along the way, there were tremendous minds, a great body of knowledge that was capable of planning and executing unbelievable works of skill, beauty, and wisdom. The uh, Egyptians themselves were of the opinion that at a remote time the gods had been with men, that deities and divine powers walked the earth. Perhaps what they were trying to tell us is that in a remote time long ago, the human being was naturally mystical naturally had the power of extrasensory perception, naturally could communicate or understand, estimate, or react to the divine principles upon which the universe was based. That the really the, the gods walking with men merely meant that the god power in man was not obscured as it is now. That gradually over a course of time, the material world has taken over this depth of insight has been lost as the result of the individual being subjected to continual external conditioning. As a result of that, he has lost the power of direct contact with realities. There was undoubtedly a tradition that descended into Egypt from a still earlier source, a tradition based upon an internal development of spiritual resources by four or five thousand or even ten thousand BC uh, there was a great knowledge in the hands or in the keeping of a few persons and these few persons more or less set up the system of mysteries which operated in Egypt, Greece, and the Roman Empire. The initiate system which was the prevailing system in Egypt at that time was based upon one tremendous point the purposes of the mysteries, according to such initiates as Plotinus, Proclus, Iamblichus, Ammonius, Saccus, and others, was that the individual should learn factually, truly, beyond question, beyond doubt, through personal experience, that death is an illusion. So maybe it was with the help of giants that the pyramids were built. Maybe the stunning cathedrals and structures that still stand today were also built with the aid of giants. But why did giants exist then and not now? Well, a theory based upon the idea that our realm was once silicone-based and not carbon as it is today. This means that there was a time where carbon particles weren't dominating in our atmosphere. If the atmosphere were silicone-based, 
everything would be much larger than it is now. This includes all life on earth, including man and trees. It's said that a race of giants had come to earth and cut down all the trees. This is found in the book of Enoch, which was removed from the Bible. So what would happen if all these trees were cut down? The environment would quickly become carbon-based, as we are seeing as evidence of deforestation, which is the increase of CO2. But what evidence do we have to prove the existence of massive trees? Plenty.
comes to modern-day giants, metaphorically speaking, Nikola Tesla, as one of the greatest inventors of our time, was a giant in his own right. Tapping into the technological understanding that once propelled Tartarian civilization and rediscovering wireless energy transmission. Free Electricity Nikola Tesla, a renowned inventor, was fascinated by wireless transmission of energy and developed the alternating current AC electrical system. His Wardenclyffe Tower in New Jersey aimed to transmit radio waves and provide free electricity to the world. However, those in control opposed free energy because it threatened their control over people. Tesla's design not only harvested energy from the sky, but also utilized telluric currents, which are natural currents within the Earth for energy transmission. The existence of underground energy transmission is a secret held by those in power. Tesla's technology and ideas revolutionized the 20th century and laid the groundwork for future achievements. One notable 21st century giant that I'd like to bring to your attention is Charlie Zeiss, the creator of Stargate Pyramids. Stargate Pyramids provides the most powerful personal healing and meditation pyramids available today. Stargate Pyramids are based upon the extensive pyramid research done by Dr. Alexander Golod and his team of scientists on behalf of the Russian government. This is by far the most extensive research ever performed on the healing, free energy, agricultural, environmental, and materials science effects of pyramid energy fields. Unfortunately, the scientific articles underlying this research were not allowed to be published in academic or scientific journals in the West. I wonder why. Stargate pyramids use the slant angle of 76.345 degrees, which is the geometric angle of universal phi scaling. Researchers Nassim Haramin and Dan Winter discovered that nature uses the golden ratio, phi, to scale all physical reality, but neither define the process of universal phi scaling or the associated geometry. Charlie's research has now been able to determine both the precise method used by nature to perform universal phi scaling, as well as the precise angle which produces it. These discoveries, along with the work of sacred geometer George Leoniak of New Geometry, have allowed Charlie to develop a first-of-its-kind model of the organizing principles of the universe. The 76.345 degree angle is found in architecture around the world and has been used for thousands of years. As we have discovered in this film, the many ancient religious buildings, Hindu and Buddhist temples, Gothic cathedrals, Greco-Roman structures, they were previously healing centers or power plants and were repurposed in more recent times to religious architecture. Well, now we know the science behind its healing powers. Keep in mind, this geometry is also found in the Giza Pyramid, ancient conical structures, obelisks, bell towers, castles, forts, Tartarian architecture, power plant cooling towers, hyperboloid structures, ancient symbols, Solomon's Key, the Sri Yantra, contemporary nautical and aeronautical technology, racing cars, and even our DNA. 
Health research conducted by leading Russian scientists, the University of London, and the Pyramid Science Foundation all confirm the amazing health benefits derived from exposure to the coherent energy fields produced by universal phi scaling. This 76.345 degree angle was also found in all the major free energy technologies of the 19th and 20th centuries. These include Nikola Tesla's Wardenclyffe Tower, the Russian pyramids, the free energy technologies of Victor Schauberger, and the drawings of free energy pioneer John Keeley. Recently, Dan Winter, perhaps the best-known contemporary proponent of free energy implosion physics, has concluded the 76.345 degree geometry is the key to free energy generation. I meditate and pray inside a Stargate Pyramid. The feeling is like taking the soul to a bath. It's refreshing at a depth that can only be felt. Also, I highly recommend adding a Pyramid Surge capstone to your Stargate Pyramid. Not just for aesthetics, as they are stunningly beautiful, but for the surge of healing energy they provide. The capstones are an essential addition to a Stargate Pyramid as they top off the structure, adding more potency to its energetic field. In short, the two are made to go with each other. The capstones are designed with the same Russian pyramid angles of 76.345 degrees and are made with a combination of shungite, magnetite, basalt, bionized quartz sand, ormus, and colloidal silver. Lastly, they are incredibly easy to add to a Stargate pyramid. Pyramid Surge is created by another modern-day giant, Lisa Richards, who is a frequency influencer a meditation master, spirit communicator, and dowser. She is the owner of Pyramid Surge, where she intuitively designs accessories for meditation pyramids and designs other energy transformation tools. She is head researcher and vice chairman of the Pyramid Science Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to pyramid energy research. If this is your first time hearing about Stargate Pyramids and Pyramid Surge Capstones, I invite you to visit both their websites, where you can learn more about what they offer. Lastly, we are gifting a discount to anyone who uses the promo code LIONSGATE. The promo code works on both websites. So, if you're interested, take a screenshot or look in the film notes and make sure to visit these sites when the film is over. See what we are doing? We are bringing back Tartaria into one home, one body, at a time. In the days of the Tartarian technologies and understanding, the use of frequency, vibration, and energy became their keys to the universe. They were far more advanced than the technologies we marvel at today. Nikola Tesla was said to have discovered free energy, yet the Tartarians had mastered these universal energies long before him. Tesla was simply rediscovering what had been hidden. Could this be why his lab was raided and his research papers stolen, and why J.P. Morgan invested against free electricity as a means to enslave us to a system we had to work for? To be very clear, Tartaria was the whole world. It was Russia all the way to the Americas. It had a unified language and design. 
How could the many pyramids and cathedrals found all over the world incorporate the same thought and design if the Tartarians weren't all connected somehow? Colonies were an invention of the British Jesuit Empire, which defeated this once beautiful civilization, enslaved their white and black people, addicted them to opium and other drugs, and turned fragile nations into colonies to rob and destroy and erase all the worldwide cities. Then they installed their puppets in every government and rewrote all of history. Public schooling founded by the Rockefeller and Rothschilds, Court Hofstraden, successfully reprogrammed our historical narrative once the children were separated from their parents. It is said that once one generation believes something to be true, the next generation assumes it to be true. The Tartarians are the cradle of civilization as the survivors and descendants of not just Rome, Greece, and Egypt, but of Hyperborea and Atlantis, topics we'll explore in future installments of this film series. It is said that history is written by the victors. The fact that the Tartarians were completely scrubbed from modern-day history proves this point. It's gotten to the point where when asked ChatGPT to condense an article on giants in Egypt, its reply was it wouldn't support topics related to terrorist organizations. One can only conclude that all of history is a lie. And the more we realize this, the more we discover the story of the one world benevolent society that lived in elegance, beauty, and harmony, that was connected spiritually, mentally, and physically in love and peace. That is until a dark force came and destroyed it. The very fact that you are watching this film is the greatest sign that we are taking our power back. By remembering what life used to be, we are taking a step closer to returning to this ancient way of life. And just because they've taken away our power doesn't mean we can't take it back.